Welcome to a special quiz episode of Think You Did About Primary Education, a celebration of season two, and a thank you to all the wonderful guests for their generosity and hard work this season. And the quiz format will be the same as last time. Everyone answers, Captain chooses a submission to answer, um, and there's no, so there's, there's no sense in which answer I'll choose, just the one that takes my fancy. So we've got Neil, you're the captain on one team with Morgs, Gareth and Lloyd. And Shannon, you're the captain of the other team with Andrew, Christopher and Adam. So I think we'll kick off with the, with the first question and we'll send this over. To, I think Lloyd will send it over to you because uh, that, that's a bit of a tradition, isn't it? Um, what is the purpose of school? Brilliant. You're going to say something about not teaching phonics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I learned. I learned from last time. I've actually prepared some stuff for tonight because uh, rather than going cold to the last quiz, <laughs> literally making stuff up, uh, I'm going to try and yeah, I've got a few things written down. So hopefully, uh, I'll be able to answer a bit better. All right. So I think the purpose of school uh, is to enrich the lives of children, giving them access to and application of an agreed body of an important knowledge that ultimately increases opportunities in later life, all done through the lens of care. Boom. <laughs> Shocked yeah. into hey, silence. Don't, you can stuff, <laughs> stick your phonics, Shannon. Yeah, all right, whatever. <laughs> That's a powerful start, Lloyd. Okay, I bet you're all hoping I give a real duffer answer after that bell serving void. Um, I, I, I went for, for children to develop intellectually, emotionally, physically, in, as rounded individuals, to be adaptable, uh, to be curious, and for that to be born from a breadth of understanding and knowledge. You said you didn't prepare. No, <laughs> yeah. from. I mean, that is glorious. I don't oh, come on, the wrong burgundy oh, the moment there, isn't it? A bit of jazz flute. Oh, I didn't prepare anything as he gets his little jazz flute out of his. Uh... <laughs> well, oh, I, I love. Should some, it... I should have brought something down. Oh, Chris is like making notes as I. Oh, like, yeah, okay. The caliber of this has just got enough. So, what word can I say instead of this? I've just realised I desperately need to find a notepad to meet this standard. <laughs> no, don't worry. Honestly, don't worry. <laughs> I haven't said I haven't prepared a thing. <laughs> I just can't wait for Kieran to have to edit this because it's going to be about five hours Start making notes. Oh, an edgy cast notebook, so it's all good. I think it's, is it me next? I think. Oh, now, yeah. yeah. Oh, thanks. Well, mine, mine's not as good as those last two that you both nailed it. Um, I suppose historically it was all to sort of um, provide a sort of skilled populace for a workforce and I suppose that's still to an extent kind of kind of true fundamentally but I think personally I would say it's all about providing children with opportunity so whether that be through teaching of knowledge or personal qualities like resilience or so on whatever it may be that when they go out into adult life that they can pursue whatever it is they want to pursue whether that be university or whatever career choice or things they want to do so it's all about providing them with that opportunity. I'm going to be quite controversial. Oof, go on, you know. I think the pandemic has probably proved this um, slightly more so than perhaps before, but I honestly think it's childcare with some added benefits in that we get to actually impart knowledge, we get to prepare them for the world. But I generally think a large part of it, judging from the pandemic and everything that's gone through and how kind of society seems to stop straight or stopped when the kids weren't going to school, um, it is childcare. Oh, how did the parents among us feel about that? 
I think I'm somewhere between Morgs and Neil. So I think I think it's a mixture of useful and useless knowledge. So I think it's useful in the sense of like providing childcare. It's useful in the sense of of creating people who are able to interact with the world in a sort of economically successful way, in a way that's going to allow them to fulfil some kind of potential. Uh, but there's lots of like useless knowledge that's just sort of good for its own sake as well, and getting students to encounter that. But also, I think it's really important that we give students, especially in primary, the foundation to be able to interact with uh, like knowledge and culture outside of school. So uh, I didn't really develop intellectually until well into my late 20s uh, because, you know, I just didn't really pay attention at school. But I realised that they'd laid the groundworks there so that I could I could uh, engage with stuff as an adult. So I think that's quite important. You've all been so eloquent so far that forgive me just saying something simple and then waffling after it a little bit. I think full stop, really, what education is about is supporting children to live meaningful lives. I think it's as simple as that, um, which obviously, you know, leads to the question, well, what is a meaningful life? And this is all the good schools that actually talk about ethos. What they really mean is they've thought carefully about what they think a meaningful life is and how you support children to look at that. I think because there are so many varied answers to the question, what is a meaningful life? Part of what education has to do is it has to try and look at all the different angles philosophically about what people have said it could lead to a meaningful life so there's the hedonistic or epicurean idea where you're looking at you know just joy and pleasure and you know partly that's the reason why we teach the arts and why we teach music some people take you know find fulfillment and meaning in their lives through human interaction hence the reason we teach literacy and reading and all these sorts of things there's also that aspect of knowledge that's just worth knowing for its own sake and I guess the question in that is, how does that lead to a meaningful life? Um, which is where, if you'll forgive me, just 30 more seconds. I think there's this aspect about living a meaningful life. And this is, this is where I come from, which is that there's an aspect of bearing witness when it comes to our lives. There's like an infinite oblivion of a lack of consciousness before we were born presumably an infinite oblivion afterwards. And then there's this tiny scintilla in the middle where we get to be matter that knows that it's matter and we get to just see it and experience it. And part of living a meaningful life is, is that. And a big part of thus why we, <laughs> thus part of why we teach children and what we teach them is all of these aspects of trying to help them to live a meaningful life. Come and do a quiz, Kieran said. It'll be fun on a Friday. Happy <laughs> <laughs> Friday, the most uh, Christmas there you'll get. Just want to point out that I think Chris said what education is for, but I'm pretty certain the question was what school is for. So Ooh. yeah, maybe I would say that they're basically the same question. I'd, I'd argue that they're the same question, but yeah, no, fair enough. So what school is for is to help. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well. You've, that. You've, you've, <laughs> left, you've left me till, till the very end, haven't you? Thanks, everyone. I'm, I'm really appreciative of, of that because you've all taken my answers. So, you know, and uh, now I'm going to I'm going to cheat slightly. Um, I'm going to crib from the the updated Welsh curriculum that's been released and rolled out. I'm not going to call it the new curriculum because that's a that's a lie. It's not a new curriculum. It's just an, a kind of updated, rewritten curriculum. Um, 
But it's, it's, it's interesting what Neil said about kind of actually what is school for versus what's education for. I think actually they can potentially be two separate things, but obviously the main, uh, the main route into education for, for most children and young people is through school. So they're kind of one and the same in some respects. You know, you can take school, you can take children out of the school and it still be part of school. So you go on a residential, you're still in school, you're just not in the school building if that makes sense. Um, but looking at the kind of the, the ambition for um, the curriculum in Wales is they, they set it out in four purposes, which I actually think do a really good job of highlighting what we should be aiming for for our children and young people. Um, so they talk about helping children to develop into ambitious, capable learners. Um, and I think actually teaching young people to learn is really important. Um, it's a skill in itself, having lifelong learning skills. And I think I go into what Chris said about having a meaningful life. I think part of that is having that drive and desire to learn constantly and not to just get to one point and stop. Um, and I think that all starts in school. That starts from when they walk in, in the nursery in some cases. Um, and you do that through things like uh, creativity and literature and uh, the sciences and having a nice broad uh, curriculum. Uh, but I also think in the, in the current world that we live in, I think being uh, ethical and knowledgeable about the world is very, very important. And some children and young people might not have that um, provided from maybe their home setting. And I know I'm, I'm talking from personal um experience and as a parent that you try and do the best for your children but you're not always going to give them exactly what you know they're not going to get everything you're always going to give them a slightly skewed view of the world whereas in school they're going to get a much broader um look at the world um and also school i think is a really important part of helping children to develop confidence as well because um you see some children who maybe haven't had a great experience in school who go to maybe a different school and suddenly become more confident or maybe children who've um and this this goes to really early year settings where I've, I've seen the difference in children who have maybe not gone to a nursery for example or who have gone to a nursery and they have very different um starting points uh, in terms of uh, confidence and interaction and the way that they um just are able to, to to deal with being surrounded by lots of people which when they get older they are going to be surrounded by lots of people in their in their lives so school is much more than just literacy and numeracy and the arts and things like that it's also about developing well-rounded human beings in, in, in the first place uh, I think if I think about the kinds of children that I teach and the children that I have taught it's it's showing them that there is more out there and giving them the knowledge to know that they can be more and do more and be better than the surroundings that they're in and I kind of see that as quite a huge part of my job at school at the moment. I think I think the answers to that question just sort of show how hard you guys work to prepare for these kind of things and um, so now team captains have to have to choose which answer you're going to submit. I am going to go with Gareth's answer. I like that he touched on a whole rounded individual. I thought that was really, really nice. So, yeah. And he used the word born, which was just lovely. Yes. I, I'm going to go with Adam's answer because I really liked the 
useful and useless knowledge I you know that kind of struck a chord with me Neil if you'd gone with your answer I'm a big fan of the childcare that I get from the, my kids school <laughs> <laughs> oh, your audience, Neil How else do you all have time to write these fantastic books when you have children, right? You said, and that's when you do your work. <laughs> I think on this occasion, um, because I'm pretty sure my answer would have been on the same lines, I'm going with Adams. So well done, guys. You've got uh, 10 points, let's say. But they were all fantastic answers. It was really hard, actually. Last time, I, I did a quite a good job of deciding. But this time, I was like, oh, my goodness, which one am I going to choose? Question two, which is, we have Google. Why do we need teachers? So I'm just going to say, I'm cribbing off Andrew now. Andrew cribbed off the Welsh curriculum. I'm cribbing off Andrew. So as Andrew was speaking, I wrote down what he said about because I, I really liked what you said. And I wrote down what you said about kind of what we're aiming for with kids. And I thought about, can Google do any of this? Uh, can Google create children who are ambitious? No, it doesn't. It creates children who aren't ambitious, who just feel like the answers are right there for them. Can it create capable children? No, not really. I mean, it doesn't, having that knowledge at your fingertips, it doesn't create children who have the skills to go and find knowledge. And, and you mentioned learning to learn. And while Google is the opposite of learning to learn, it doesn't really provide you with any kind of framework or structure for finding future knowledge. That's what we do as teachers. We teach children how to go and find out about things they're interested in. Uh, does it teach children to be ethical? Um, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, we don't trust a child with, with YouTube or TikTok or anything to become ethical. Uh, I think that's a big part of what we do in schools. Uh, if I think about the kind of conversations that I've had this week with year six, they're, they're not the kind of conversations that Google can have with a child about all the kind of issues we've talked about. Um, does it help children to be knowledgeable about the wider world? And it doesn't. It doesn't. One of my kind of passions is about powerful knowledge, and that's about creating a world in which an education in which children encounter things outside their own world. And, and Google doesn't help children do that at all, really. Google only, you can only get out of Google what you put into Google. So you're not going to know about you know, you're not going to be able to go and search for things, uh, useless knowledge, if you will, that you can't encounter through Google. Uh, does it create confident children? It doesn't create confident children. No, it creates children who have no confidence in their own knowledge because they think they don't need to learn. They just find what's available. It doesn't create socially intelligent children. It doesn't create, create well-rounded children. I think that's what we do as teachers. So, you know, if we take Andrew's definition of what education is for, which I think is great, to my mind, Google doesn't really tick any of any of those boxes. Hard to add much to that. Um, having given a really embarrassingly pretentious answer to the first question, I'll try and be a bit more practical uh, with this one. Um, I totally agree with what Adam, Adam said about the idea of it being involving being inducted into a culture as much as anything else. But my practical answer is this. Given the nature of the question, I Googled the question to see what would come up for why do we have why do we need teachers now we have google the first two hits tried to sell me something and the third hit was a news article written by someone with zero teaching experience if that doesn't exemplify why we need teachers now that google exists um i don't know why else does yeah i'm gonna just I, i'm gonna rather than submit a formal single answer I, I am going to just add on to that i think the issue with google is that it is just a tool it's not 
necessarily a teaching tool it's a research tool um, and one of the most difficult skills to um, to imbue in children and young people is critical research and I, in fact that's a very difficult thing to get adults to do properly never mind children and I think that if, you know I, I used Google in school today however we used it as a tool specifically just to find a micro piece of information that we needed and even then we had to dig very very deeply to find exactly what it was that we needed and if you just say to your class even if they're in year 11 12 13 uh, they're older pupils if they just google the first thing and copy it from wikipedia they're not actually engaging with what they're actually reading they're just realistically they're just being lazy they're just trying to find the first thing that comes to mind and not actually being critical about what it is they're done and i think that's the most important aspect there is that as teachers we have to be able to teach them the importance of being very careful with what they read online i'm also just going to build on it so it might end up as a collaborative answer is that allowed kieran i don't know probably not um I think if you think about lockdown and think about how our children came back from lockdown, and I was in a unique position in that our children didn't really access anything online, but I know teachers whose children did access things online, and that was with a teacher, either recorded lessons or live lessons, whatever it was, and they couldn't learn properly through that. So how are they going to learn without a person there? How are they going, like giving them Google isn't teaching them anything like Andy said you can't you can't it's not a teaching tool it's a research tool it you you have very few children who will be able to look something up on google go to the like pick the right thing like Chris said because there are things in in the way that kind of distract you then read it learn from it and then be able to apply that to something that that's not happening independently and if we get fluffy about it, like some of the stuff Adam said, not that I'm saying you're fluffy, Adam, but that's how, that's my that's my uh, that's my word for the nice bits of teaching. <laughs> like you, like a te- uh, Google's not going to put a wet paper towel on someone's sore knee. Google's not going to fix a friendship. And I know that teaching is not just the fluffy stuff, but so much of what we do is not the actual teaching. So Google can't diagnose gaps in learning, can it? Therefore, it can't be insightful. It can't be responsive when, when it's producing its results, right? It doesn't know what child needs to know. Uh, and I'll argue, neither does the child. You know, if you think of Rumsfeld's knowledge, knowledge matrix of unknown unknowns, right? Like you could argue that Google itself suffers from expert blind spot. And as it won't necessarily provide the small steps, or atom, the atomized part, or like the prerequisites that are needed to build in order for children to understand. Next. All of those answers are great. And I knew that people would be saying stuff like that. So instead, I'm going for a, for a specific example of what has happened uh, infam- infamously to someone who did Google something and then try and use that. And I know that I think I spoke to Neil about this. It happened about a year ago. So John Boyne, who you uh, primary teachers might most famously known as the uh, author of The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, he was writing um, a historical drama set in the real world. And he um, was talking about dyeing a dress red. And he went on Google and he clearly just Googled how to dye something red. The first result told him to use Lizalfo's key swing, octorox and Hylian shrooms. So he put that in his book. 
What he didn't know is that those are four made up things that are in the game of Zelda. And Zelda was the first result on Google when he searched it. So he Googled how to die on red, read that and just chucked it in his book. And then he found out after it was published, like they published these made up things. <laughs> so that is what I thought as a perfect example of why you can't just Google something and Google can't replace teachers. Zelda. I remember seeing that. I was so disappointed that he didn't try and style it out and say, no, I'm just a big fan of Zelda. Look at that Not little Easter egg. <laughs> yeah, little, little Easter egg. Gareth? Let, let me add, there's, there's one thing that I would add to everything that you, you've said, which is just that like, I think part of being human is about wanting to be significant or to be excellent or to be surprising or to excel and I know like it's like just with little details with with my kids if I tell them to do something they don't want to do it but if they have the opportunity to be surprising or excellent then they absolutely love it and I think that's something obviously you you kind of can't get from Google you you can't excel Um, and I think we're, we're wired to excel and be unique and finding ways to make that happen, I think, is, is what teachers do. I don't know how, how it is for everyone else, but I'm pretty fed up of seeing parents at the school gate kind of on their phones and not talking to their children once they pick up their children. And obviously the phones aren't Google, but Google is on the phone. Google is on the tablets. Google is on any device that accesses the internet. And I think children get addicted to it. And I think smartphone addiction, screen addiction is a real thing. And it happens very, very early on. And Google, by extension, is part of that. It's certainly, I think, I've talked to a few children. What other web browsers do you know? They don't know what a web browser is. They just know, you know, Google has become a verb now, not become not a, not just a noun. And so obviously there's that ethical argument I think as to about whether you know if we do allow kind of children to just google things what are the deep-seated kind of negatives about that are we just building up that kind of zombie culture where it's you know 24-7 looking at these and actually losing that human interaction and what it means to be human and to you know develop those deep connections between someone you know you get no empathy you don't understand situations, social social situations. If all your time is spent on a phone, and by extension, that probably means googling things to get your next kind of immediate dopamine hit. And I think that's why uh, Google will never replace teachers because at the end of the day, we got to try and prevent all that from happening. Cool. So, team captains, you got some. You got to think about which answer you're going to submit, and obviously. 10 points ahead, Shannon, your team. Pressure. Um, so, so I can't just submit our, um, our built-on answer. It's just such a nice you know, example of teamwork, did you not think? <laughs> teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs> it also no. gives you bonus points. Surely everyone <laughs> submitting an answer is like worth a multiple of four. So. Such high quality stuff from my team, I'm so proud. I'm going to go with Christopher Such because I just love that he Googled it. <laughs> and it and it didn't help. I'm gonna go with um, Lloyd because Google definitely I think it might get Google might get to a point where it might be able to do those things. For the second question in a row, Neil, 
had you gone with your own answer, you probably would have got it. Because I think <laughs> the reason we'll still have schools in 100 years time is because of the social aspect. You know, because I do think it'll probably be possible at some point to give people knowledge. And, um, you know, who knows how well we'll be able to think with it. But I think the social aspect and the way we interact with each other, hopefully, won't change. So if you'd, if you'd said that, Neil, if you'd gone for yourself, you probably would have got the points again. And um, so we're going with Lloyd and Chris. Um, and it's a it's a 20-point lead for Shannon's team. Well done, Chris. Um, Sorry, guys. Awesome. Because, um, I mean, Shannon, you guys have got a 20-point lead going into question three. You're hired by the government to take on the role of workload czar. What do you do to solve a seemingly ever-worsening workload crisis? And we'll start this time with Neil's team. Uh, so I would go straight to, and I would address, I would get all of the senior leaders in the country in one room, uh, in, uh, in, in the Olympia, or Big something right. like that, or the XL, you know, the, in, in the NEC. I'd, I'd, I'm a massive speaker. I was getting all in one room, and I would say, stop evidencing everything ever because you don't need to do that because it's buckling teachers in half making them evidence where they've walked in the school in a day like there's this fetish and i don't talk to neil almond about this before around over evidencing everything to prove that it's happened and mm -hmm. there's this a, a preposterous preposterous mistrust that is bred, and I'm going to say it's bred from the inspectorate. It is the legacy and the hangover and fallout of the inspectorate that has caused this insane need to evidence because people are afraid of not being able to prove that they've done something that they've done. And it's like, you know, going in and checking and going, you have you done that? Have you? And if they, and most, and I'm not saying it's all the time, there are teachers, you know, there are times where they don't, you know, people don't do it. But we've got to shift away from this thing of like everything ever being written down and caught and captured and photographed and, you know, and every in every way possible. And I think that for me would be the first thing I would do. And like I say, I'm not talking about all leaders. Um, some leaders are great and do it brilliantly and understand it now. But I would just talk to them all anyway. And then I'd go and have a chat straight with the inspector and go, right. We need to rectify this, and there's a massive campaign for it. That's my one. I mean, I've tried to think about a sort of like silver bullet here, and I just really couldn't think of one. But I think obviously the um, responsibility falls at, at the, the feet of uh, leaders, doesn't it? And it's not not teachers. Um, and obviously, like reducing workload, it's a two part phrase. Like you got to think about workload, and you got to think about how do you reduce it. So, as the workload side, be thinking about benchmarking what the workload is nationally so how many how many hours should they should teachers actually be working how much marking should they be doing how much planning should they be doing and so on and then i think about right how, how can we reduce all the sort of extraneous stuff that we do i know we've talked in the past about sort of getting rid of subjects like dt and um modern foreign languages and i, I personally one thing i do is like a silver bullet for teachers take stuff like that away and then change that into just extra ppa or what, what whatever time they need to do um yeah, so I suppose just benchmarking what teacher workload is and then going from there and how, how to reduce it. I couldn't really think of anything other than that, I'm afraid. Gareth? Essentially, I would agree with those two things. The only thing that I would add 
is like I was terrible for that as well traditionally like for m- managing my own workload and I think part of that was not actually having time where I'd actually stop and think is this really adding value personally because I had so many jobs to do and I don't know if sometimes that was a kind of insecurity that I had of trying to please everyone um, and so I think actually for me it had been probably taking more time out in a day to stop and, and just let my brain sell and then to reflect and think is this actually adding any value? Um, and that doesn't answer the question because I essentially agree with Lloyd and Elliot, but like as an individual, that would be the one thing that I think I, I'd have done much, much more throughout my career. I'm going to, I think what I would do is I would ban PowerPoint and any kind of presentation software because I think a lot of teaching has become presentive information. I think if you ask teachers what they spend a lot of their time on and what their kind of an expectation is, is to prepare all of these PowerPoints, all these presentations. And I think they actually spend quite a lot of time doing that. Now, obviously they can be quite useful, but I actually think, and I'm sure we've all kind of experienced it, the minute the internet goes down, everyone panics people were educated and educated very well before all of those things. And so obviously a a skill has been lost by the profession in being able to actually teach without these things. And so I think it'd be quite, I think obviously there would be a bit of panic first, a bit of probably a moral panic. And then I think after a while, people would calm down and actually realize, yeah, do you know what? I don't need to stay up till nine, 10 o'clock making these PowerPoints. I have the confidence actually to go in and prepare and teach something obviously not on the cuff you obviously think and plan about and think through it carefully and plan it but actually you can go in and just deliver a really solid lesson without being over reliant on a powerpoint that's a strong set of answers from all of you there guys isn't it adam one of your questions uh, on the powerful curriculum podcast is about textbook or powerpoint how does neil's response match up with the opinions of your guests so far uh, Neil can pry my PowerPoints from my cold, dead hands. Uh, that answer. No, a real horror on your face. <laughs> I am a bit. I'm a bit PowerPoint reliant. I've got my iPad, so I just I annotate all my PowerPoints on my iPad. It's all very high tech. Uh, yeah, no, that'll be hard to beat. Um, so then we over Adam we're over to you. You think for Shannon's team? Cool. So um, I thought about this earlier today on the train home um and i was thinking you know i feel like i've got my my workload is fairly under control uh, and a big part of that is that my school has an hour-long lunch break so if i was going to change anything i think i would make that mandatory across all schools because you know <clears throat> five minute walk to the sandwich shop for my like salt beef bagel on a friday sit down 15 minutes to eat that talk to like people in my year team catch up with people and then I've got like 40 minutes in the middle of the day to do like what Gareth was saying, to have a bit of mental space, to sit in my classroom without any kids in it, to walk around and look at the English books they've left open, to hand out the work for the afternoon, to do a bit of, you know, uh, a bit of uh, guillotining, to do a bit of displays, to do bits and bobs. And it's brilliant. And like in most days, I end up out on the playground like 10 minutes before and play a bit of table tennis with the kids or like, you know just just have a bit of fun and when i've in the past when i've only had like half an hour lunch breaks you don't 
you just eat and then you you like rush to the photocopier um and it's so i just value it so much having that time in the middle of the day to do bit so i guess it's not really reducing workload but it's like making workload more manageable having that time in the middle of the day that means that actually some some days i can dash out and get the train home basically not long after the kids have gone because i've managed to get most of the stuff done in the middle of the day am i allowed to give a multi-part answer I wouldn't expect anything different, Christopher. Yeah, I'm going to. So I'm, well, I'm just thinking about I might end up taking other people's answers, but stop it. Um, Subsection A. <laughs> the fundamental one that kind of underpins everything else is get rid of Ofsted grading because every school I've worked in where, where workloads got out of control, it's because you've got desperate head teachers pushing things on teachers because they think certain things are going to impress Ofsted every single time that it's got out of control and where I've seen people leaving the profession under those circumstances it's come from above and those poor head teachers aren't doing it for no reason so that would if I, if I could pick one it would probably be that but I think there are possibly other ways around it I think where possible instituting a set work day I know there would need to be room for flexibility for people who are teachers who are also parents and need to dash out and this sort of thing but I think it would change mindsets to have the idea of okay no we are right you must be in by eight but the school's locked up at five and we don't expect you to do anything outside that if you're doing something work outside that come and see us so that might be another way around it um I think a lot of time is wasted with curriculum products. I think trying to put together your own curriculum and teach it in a certain way and get the teachers to know it. So I think having a variety of available curriculum products, people will know that I'm like, this is one of my hobby horses, a variety of curriculum products available for every subject across the primary phase um, alongside related subject knowledge guides would save teachers a lot of time. Um, but the last one, and probably my, this is probably my favorite answer. So if you're just gonna pick one, go with this. I would find a way to incentivize into primary education more people who weren't goody two-shoes at school. I was so well behaved at school and it means I arrived to school as a teacher completely awed by authority figures. And it's that awe around authority figures, I think, that leads to teachers partly working or it leads to a culture of teachers working 55, 60 hours a week. I think if you've got a few more people into primary education who were just like, yeah, I can do a good job in 45 hours or 40 hours, so that's what I'm going to do. Don't care what other people think. I think if you had more people like that, the culture would change. So, yeah, somehow incentivize people who were naughty at school, who didn't want to impress their <laughs> teachers into primary education. Because I think primary education is filled with people who, you know, always wanted to bash together the whiteboard, you know, what they call the black the chalkboard rubbers and the people who wanted to clean the whiteboard for the teacher. You know, fewer of those in education would be a good idea. <laughs> There's that guy on Twitter. <laughs> Shannon, you're, hmm, that was just like, yeah, yeah I bet I've just described Shannon. I bet you were that. <laughs> I bet you were that kid. Yeah. You, you were sharpening <laughs> pencils at lunchtime. She said before about that teacher in year three or year four, she looked up and she was like, I'm going to be a teacher. That's why she's giggling. Look at her. <laughs> yeah, that was me. But I think the problem, the, the problem with workload is, and it's been touched on by other people, and I don't like to jump on the other team answers, but the problem with workload, and this is from someone who's worked in a number of different places, is the workload is different everywhere you go. The expectations are different. Um, 
in many, many different ways. So one school will expect you to have massively detailed lesson plans, but not as detailed marking, whereas another school might have a scrap of paper with some learning objectives on, but highly detailed marking. So I, it, it's, it's actually an impossible thing to fully fix because if you take one thing away, something gets added on elsewhere, or similarly, something gets added on top and something gets dropped off the bottom. So I don't think you can necessarily solve workload in picking a single specific thing to, to get rid of. Um, but I think actually what a lot of the answers have come down to and what would massively improve it is funding. Simple, which is which probably won't ever come because we've seen what's happened to funding in, in education over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Um, but you, you've just got to look back at what what the original role of teaching assistants and LSAs were when, when the, the idea of having an extra person in your classroom was to take away some of those jobs like photocopying and cutting things out and sticking things up on display. But more and more, I find myself doing those things because my teaching assistant is off running intervention groups and doing all sorts of different things. So actually the workload itself hasn't gone away. It's because the boundaries and the, the goalposts have been changed because the expectations have been raised because, and again, it comes down to inspectorates and school grading systems where you have to get progress. It's all about progress, progress, progress. What you do is you squeeze all the resources you have and then you see that you're not getting necessarily the value for money because you ended up having to do more work yourself when actually the work was supposed to be reduced in the first place. Unfortunately, funding is probably not going to be one of those things which is uh, going to change anytime soon. But if I was put in charge of it, I would find the money from somewhere. All of the things that have gone through my head, people have sort of said, so I'm going to sort of elaborate on something that um, Chris said about curriculum. Also, one of my bugbears is when teachers are spending hours and hours and hours and hours planning something from scratch because their school has tried to be really out there and chosen these Zazzy topic titles that are nowhere to be found on any scheme on the internet. And so I think I would go down the route of having either like a high quality textbook, Kieran, or <laughs> like Adam, I know you guys have book clips. And I think that having a national curriculum that everyone actually uses and that the children in the country get the same offer and it's, you know, planned to an extent you know you've got the 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 sequence of learning and you've got everything you know what you're teaching and all you have to think about is the how I think that would take a huge amount of workload away from teachers and I think there'll be teachers who kick off and say oh well, that's the bit I enjoy I like planning lessons well don't stay up until midnight doing it because that's not right and if I see one more post on Facebook where it's like my topic is the world's kitchen <laughs> Can you please help me with some planning? I might explode. I'm so fed up with it. So I think having a national, an actual national curriculum that is a curriculum that we all follow and we all use the same, the same lessons. And there will be a bit that you've had to plan yourself locally, but for the majority of it, we're all doing the same stuff. That's what I would do. It would, I think it would reduce workload a lot. Here, here. Nice. I'm, I'm a big fan of autocratic governance as well, Shannon. So. <laughs> that's what I've written down in my notes um, I've, I've made notes this time because I knew that there were some fire answers coming and, and they didn't disappoint at all so captains you've got to decide which you're going to submit 
judging by the previous two, I, I'd be foolish not to go with my own. So I'm going to go with mine. I want to go with my own as well. Like at some point, the captain has to do this. So now seems like a good enough time. Oh, hubris here. Come on, tell him neither of them won. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's a shame that Neil's chosen on the one time that uh, <laughs> Shannon has chosen something, you know, I, I joke about autocracy, but I do think a reduction in the amount of choice available um, in some aspects would increase our freedoms in other, in others, in other areas. Um, and so I, I certainly would have, you know, um, and even I might not like it to start off with, because I know that the way that certain things are sequenced now isn't the way I would sequence them if I had the choice to write my own curriculum. But if I had something, no matter where I went, then we could do all the wonderful things Garth does, you know, where we could take, right, okay, here's the content. How can we be really creative with this? How can we really go deeper into the, you know, I'm obviously thinking about mathematics, but I think it applies to all the other subjects too. And so, yeah, so a, a genuine national curriculum um, is, gets 10 points. So that's, that's a 30-point lead you guys have got. The next two questions are, so an alien asks you what CPA is and you've got 25 seconds to respond. What do you say? Um, and then the next one after that is an alien asks you what interleaving is and you have 20 seconds to respond. And you guys can choose one person on your team to respond for you, but it can't be the captains. So an alien asks you what CPA is and you've got 25 seconds to respond. What do you say Needle's team? Nominate uh, Metcalf for CPA. Wise move. Do we we use objects either to show our understanding or build an understanding, and then if it is, becomes more efficient, we might use a picture, and that might broaden the scope of what we can cover. And then at some point, that will become automated, where we can just use uh, abstract symbols, and we'll know what we mean by them. Smashing. And Chan's team. Adam. It seems like a lot of digital space has been dedicated to the use of concrete. <laughs> 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 Great in a way, because I regularly find a lot of value <laughs> in at various points in any given te teaching sequence. And um, that's about 25 seconds, I reckon. <laughs> I'm oh, glad you didn't get to the bit about my cold, dead cadaver, <laughs> <laughs> which comes a little bit later in that chapter. <laughs> oh. Ten points, surely. Very clever. Very clever. Smashed it. <laughs> no. I'll say I, I, I love the thing that, like, it is many people's holy grail CPA. It's, it's like, and I love that part in the book. I have to say that um, because they think this is the truth. This is where we've nailed it. If we can do CPA, let's shoehorn it into everything. And uh, I, I, I really like the fact that you addressed that. <laughs> Thanks, Gareth. Clever old fish, isn't he? Um, yeah, no, um, Gareth, your answer was superb. So that's 10 points for Neil's team. Well done. <laughs> Whatever. You can we get a comedy bonus. Comedy bonus. Absolutely, comedy bonus. That's one of those moments where Neil should have gone, Kieran, if you did go for your own book there, then I wouldn't have been <laughs> 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 Oh, brilliant. Excellent. Um, so at this point, 
we're going to pause slightly because we've got a we've got a winner to draw because obviously one lucky reviewer will win a copy of 100 ideas for primary teachers maths by Shannon um, and I'll get this right this time the art and science of teaching primary reading by Christopher the research ed guide to curriculum featuring a chapter by Neil and then thinking deeply about primary mathematics where the lucky reader can continue Adam's um, wonderful excursion into it. Um, so I have got set up one of those little wheels. I'm not going to try and share my screen because the internet will collapse, but we've got <laughs> all the reviews. So hopefully you can hear this. Um, if I click on it, it will choose the winning review. It's it's D Tape. Again. Yeah. Go again. <laughs> so the winner is Billy Thorpe. Congratulations! Oh, 4P. Well done, 4P. So that was quite recent. So they said, this podcast has already had a profound impact on my career. It's given me the maths bug and has inspired me to buy many, many books, start a Twitter account, and began planning my own foray into the world of education writing. The best CPD on your pocket. What more could you want? So I think that that definitely deserves to win those four books. Cool. So back to the quiz. An alien asks you what interleaving is, and you have 25 seconds to respond. What do you say? Who did we start with last time? We started with Neil's team last time. So, Shannon, we'll start with your team this time. I nominate Mr. Christopher Such. <clears throat> okay. Um, interleaving is the practice of varying learning activities with a potential gain in outcomes in contrast to long periods of learning a single concept. Currently, it seems unclear whether interleaving has any benefits that go beyond the value of distributed practice. But if it does, it will be due to interleaving preventing learners from entering a comfort zone through contrast between examples. And Neil's team, who do you choose? I chose Lloyd. Okay, so interleaving is when you identify themes and concepts that recur throughout different topics and plan to teach them in the context of those topics, uh, like a golden thread. Nominate... Metcalf. Okay, so order being, learn to speak English, learn to fly spaceship, learn to put on spacesuits, followed by learn to speak English, learn to fly spaceship, learn to put on spacesuit. And look, I have to keep looking at my notes for this. <laughs> Continue. Continue. That's how you explain it to the alien, obviously. That, that, that is superb. Um, I love both answers. The reason it's in there is because I don't think anyone's ever explained interleaving properly, but with the help of Lloyd and Gareth's explanation and making it relevant to the context of the alien, um, I think I understand a little bit better um, what it is. So that's uh, 10 points for Neil's team. So the, it's now 30 20, plus 20, um, but a, a valiant effort, Chris. And, um, you know, very, very close. <laughs> So the next one, 
is the most heinously used word in education. And we'll start with Shannon's team. I'm going to put a hyphen between my two words uh, and pretend it's one word, but I'm just going to say dual coding. I just, just literally, it's just clip art, isn't it? Like 90% of the time. So. Excellent. Controversial. And um, who's next on your team, Shannon? Chris? Lloyd sort of took one that I was going to use earlier. I'm not going to mention it just in case someone else still wants to use it. But um, so I'm going to go with the word play, but in a very specific context. Um, the phrase that I've heard over and over and over in education is, oh, we need to play the game. You know, we, you know, we've got Ofsted in next year. We need to play the game. I, I hate it. I hate it so much. It's effectively saying we need to ignore any kind of ethical duties we have to the children for a moment because. So when, whenever I hear a senior leader use the word play under that, in that context, um, I just, yeah, I hate it. I cringe. So I'm going to go with that one. I'm going to go with a two-word phrase as well. I'm going to go with growth mindset. Just hard work. <laughs> Just work hard. Not hard. But the problem is, 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 is more... Actually, the, the idea behind growth mindset is actually quite, uh, is quite nice. It's just the misuse of it that I, don't, uh, that I don't like is how it's been turned into this kind of magical thing where if you have a growth mindset, then you will become this amazing thing. I, it's rubbish and even even um carol dweck who coined it i think it was actually said herself that it is just a theory it's not actually a proven thing yet there are some schools who have taken it so massively on board that it's become like their whole being and actually a lot of it just comes down to wanting to do better and wanting to to achieve so yeah i, th I think the actual phrase growth mindset itself, I think just it needs to get in the bin, to be honest with you. There's a great photo of me at my last job when I was a secondary school teacher, probably at my lowest ebb, really like teaching in front of a growth mindset display, but the <laughs> growth mindset display that was like, I can't do this. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I was on lunch ah, and realised I was stood in front of it and I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> I'm going to go with consistency and the need for like year group partners to be doing the same thing at all times and for leaders to be preaching consistency all the time when the nature of the beast is that our children are different and we need to respond to their needs. Nice. Wrong answers all right, guys. Um, kind of links back to the, um, the workload question. And for me, the word would be outstanding. I think that carries a lot of baggage uh, and pretty much all of it negative. And I think the less leaders say the word outstanding i generally think the happier your staff are and i think the better the outcomes probably will be for those kids if we stop using that word lulled into silence i like it we keep that long silence that, in there. That, that got too deep really quickly let's, let's yeah. make it funny again <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, my real answer is maths because it's not maths, it's mathematics. It's <laughs> <laughs> not shorten it. Uh, Gareth? My answer has a, a little thread to link Chris's and Neil's, I think, because it's the word cuspy. Now, like, if anyone was to describe my child as cuspy, I would be really annoyed. It's not a thing. Um, but how often have we all heard people use the word cuspy to describe yeah. a child? <laughs> and it just so isn't good. a description of a child in any sense. Uh, but, but like we all, I, I imagine that you all know what I mean when I say cuspy. Absolutely. Um, the number of times I've seen schools essentially try and manipulate their own, you know, performance by spending, in, in senior leaders spending an, enormous amount of, an, an inordinate amount of time identifying cuspy children and talking about them in that way. And I, I think that must have, you know, I, I've, I've no issue with schools thinking, right, we, we won't put the support here, we'll put it there. But if it's on the basis of, is the child cuspy, then it's, it's fundamentally, um, it's fundamentally um, flawed. Such a fan of that answer. That is a great answer. <laughs> That's a good one. Neil Armand, don't pick that one. In secondary, we call them boundary jumpers. Which makes them sound oh, like that's horrible. YA novel, like like Maze Runner. I always quite enjoyed that. <laughs> we got a boundary jumper. When did Cuspy become this like shared common language? No, I know it really is a thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's, it's to do with isn't it to do with uh, star signs? When you when you when you're on the cusp of a star sign, when you've got like two star signs. I'm going to go pace. Pace is the most heinously used word in primary school because what does it mean? And Neil Armand's threads on this are just delightful because he exemplifies it exactly. What If you ever get that piece of feedback in, in any sort of form about pace, then whatever you do, question the life out of it. So I think that word gets bound around. Now, and I think Chris put it in a way that uh, nicely in, in the thread is that it's it's not, you know, it's not to say that all anything to do with paces is completely irrelevant. There is a time where, yeah, you if you hang around too long on a question, do you know what I mean? Like that is a thing. But this idea of like the, the general pace in a lesson being a thing that was wrong with a lesson is just nonsense in it. Like, you know, like in, in, in the sweeping generalizations of pace is garbage. So for me, yeah, pace. I, I thought Neil was gonna go with pace. When I, when I thought that's of that, why I, yeah, that's why I let him go first. Because if he was going to go, um, he's going to go that. I was going to change something else. Uh, right. I I had a few going through my mind. I did think about pace. I thought about well-being. Well-being seems to be a very topical one at the moment. But I actually uh, ended up on engagement. I hate the term engagement, um, and I, I think this sort of overemphasis we we place on engagement at, at the expense of learning. I think it's sort of this byproduct of that that old Ofsted era which I think still pervades in a lot of schools of where there's I don't know half term the observations and they're going oh well yeah the, the kids were all enjoying themselves they were having fun so they were definitely engaged which means they were learning and seeing engagement as a, as a proxy for learning and just yeah I mean there there is boring content we have to teach there's boring content kids have to learn but sometimes you just can't make fun like if someone can make the subjunctive fun then fair play but it's boring. And I think if you're trying to make everything engaging all the time, yeah. Oh, uh, anyway, 
so I think um, engagement is, is the one that really bugs me. And because I think we've placed too much of an emphasis on stuff that's immediately measurable rather than what is measurable over the long term, which is what we're sort of over the last couple of years coming to understand is what learning is, is that long term retention isn't it? And the change in long term memory or whatever people want to choose. So um, I'd go for engagement. Nice example to Morgs. I will actively avoid expressing wishes, doubts or fears in Spanish because I hate the subjunctive. It is, it is the worst of all the tenses. Team captains. Who do I choose? Growth mindset. Keegan. I've got to go Caspi. got to go Caspi. Both great. All great answers, in fact. Challenging some pretty sacred cows. Um, but I'm going to go with Caspi because, yeah, it's it's, it's abhorrent um, and should be resigned to what the, the Education Room 101, <laughs> which is incidentally an, a great idea for a podcast. So let, let's say... Uh, you know, we've got three podcast uh, people here. <laughs> Let's put our heads together on this one. <laughs> a new section for the podcast, yeah. Oh, yeah, great idea. Um, so that's 30 all going into the last two questions. See, it you going back. Um, so the next one, okay, question seven. What will education look like in 100 years? And uh, Neil, it's your team to start this time. We win our match and be like Google. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, 100 years. Um, I'm going to go back to Kieran's reference at the very beginning of the show. Uh, and he said that in 100 years, there will still be a need for social interaction. So, they're going to be, we're going to be, they're going to still have teachers and kids in schools, right? And then I reckon it's just going to be the same. <laughs> it's just going to be the same in a hundred years' time. I mean, it'll be much different. I think it'll just be more of the same. I mean, mine, mine's not. Yeah, mine's not too dissimilar from that. I mean, I, I'd like to think, based off like what's happening at the moment with the early career framework and stuff, that the quality of teaching and the amount of retention stuff will be better. It's quite promising. Um, I think it'll be more technology based, but simultaneously, I think some of the stuff you still see people posting on Facebook and Twitter and what people think about teaching and the myths that pervade. I wonder how much will actually change. Um, I know McCourt always talks about these 30 year cycles. And I, yeah, I, I agree with Lloyd. I don't see much changing. I don't think teachers can be replaced um altogether. So uh, yeah, apart from being more technology being involved, I don't see much much uh, difference. I mean, without meaning to sound repetitive, I was going to say the same. I, I, I think there'll still be, so long as it's humans, you know, we're, we're, we're social beings. Um, and that's kind of how we're hardwired. I think we're kind of understanding now that sometimes there's benefit in all the kind of, you know, the internet age of there being more quiet as well. Um, and and almost the, when I initially, you, you read that question, you think of like, of something futuristic and actually it's perhaps something something quieter i actually i wasn't going to say this but i, I reflect about my grandparents and i always remember like they were um cumbrian sheep farmers and and when i was a kid i remember thinking like why you know how on earth do you live in this community and then i remember going to the funerals and being absolutely overwhelmed where these people who lived like late into their 80s surrounded by this enormous community of people that loved them and there'd be farmers that would pop in and walk in and they, the front door wouldn't be locked. And, and I actually wonder whether um, we'll 
discover more about what it is to be human as well in 100 years. I'd like to choose Gareth's answer. Yeah, that, that was a powerful answer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know what to say. Um, other than it's literally going to be the same, I think, yeah, on the surface, um, it might look quite different in terms of the technology and AR and all that kind of interesting stuff. But I think deeper structure, the concept mm -hmm. of putting someone who doesn't know a lot in front of someone who knows a lot about something and ex the person who knows a lot then explains to those children, people who don't know a lot, it seems to seems to work for a millennia. It works in the animal kingdom. I see no reason why in the next hundred years um, there's going to be some massive evolutionary bio biological change that's going to change any of that. So I, again, can be exactly the same. Just the surface might look slightly different, but the deeps, the deeper structures, more knowledgeable person telling, explaining, least not unknowledgeable people what it is they want to learn. And I'll, nice. I wonder if we'll get all eight <laughs> identical. We'll find out now. Shannon, your team. So Adam, do you want to start on your your side? Um, I thought about what education was like in 1921, and I thought uh, pretty pretty similar, especially. Uh, you know, in the sort of primary and in like middle class schools. I think maybe if you look at education over the last hundred years, you could say it's become more, I'm not sure, maybe, maybe actually thinking about it, maybe it's not true, but I hope that it's become more egalitarian. So I hope that there's more equality, more standardization, that kids from like poor rural backgrounds get a sort of similar level of education as like kids from, you know, like leafy Twickenham or something like that. So my hope is that it'll carry on in that direction that, through like standardization through national curriculum through like these Ofsted subject reviews that are coming out where Ofsted's now sort of outlining like an idea of like good a good subject so trying to have an, a more standardized idea of what good education is so and, and my hope that that would then lead to like a, a more equal education system there's a lot of ifs and buts around that uh, uh, what I consider to be an inevitability, um, the idea of universal basic income is going to change how education is viewed. I think most of what we do, the social side of things, will stay relatively the same. But I think as soon as you've got something like universal basic income in place, governments are incentivized to try and push people into having a sense of purpose, because it's that sense of purpose that drives people to do work when they're not financially incentivized as much to do so so i think there will be a greater sense of helping children to find a sense of purpose at least in secondary school or you know like a, a reason to you know get up each day and go out there and do something more kind of in a, on the, in the minutiae i do think that the um thinking about what neil said with relation to you know, artificial intelligence. I do, I do think that big data is going to allow for certain aspects of education to be significantly more personalized. I, I'd be very surprised if mathematics doesn't end up, and I think me and Kieran have talked about this in the past, I'd be very surprised if um, the equivalent of smile cards, the equivalent of those personalized learning journeys that have existed at different points, if, if technology doesn't allow us to take that and use it in a much more efficient way so that a maths teacher still present, still just as requires just as much expertise, if not more, but is then working with children across a classroom that are at different places, supporting what the um, technology is providing in terms of 
demonstrations and manipulatives and this sort of thing. So um, I think we're going to be looking at helping children find a sense of purpose and something more individualized. I'm going to go with a slightly different answer. Um, I think we're at a, a funny old time at the minute in terms of technology and how we utilize technology in the classroom. Um, you know, technology moves on leaps and bounds every single year and the new things come out even every month now, whereas, you know, back when I was in primary school, we were still programming on a BBC basic and it took a very, very long time to get onto um, just to have a CD-ROM, whatever they are, you know? And I, th I think that the, the, the overuse and the misuse of technology at the moment is a bit of an issue because people are throwing things into the lessons because they feel they have to, because it's this new fandangled thing. But I actually think that as, as a few people have said that technology is going to play a massive part in education in a hundred years time, but not just in terms of how we teach, but also in terms of where we teach. I think something that maybe has been kind of overlooked is actually travel. And I think in a hundred years time, we'll be able to probably cover much larger distances in shorter spaces of time. So instead of actually looking at something on a website or doing a Skype call with someone or a Teams call with someone, we actually might physically be able to go somewhere that we might not be able to do so now. And it's those real life um, opportunities that, that always come up in, in, in so many conversations. And it's, it's shocking, you know, where, where, where I live and where I teach, we're, we're only a few miles from the beach and the number of children who don't know how to write about the, the beach and the waves and the feel of the sand and their toes and things like that is absolutely, um, it, it makes you despair. And even just to take children out at the moment, you have to get on a, on a bus, which takes a million years because it's really slow. And I actually think that in a hundred years time, we'll probably have much more efficient technologies and ways of, of moving about where we can take our children out and about within very, very short spaces of time. And almost like from your playground to, you don't even have to go into the street. You can go from your playground. to. So I'm not talking about stupid, like Star Trek warping someone. That's ridiculous. But I just think that actually the ability to travel further and quicker is going to have a, a real impact on the, 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 the experiences that we can actually offer to people um alongside actually careful use of technology um because yeah i think i think technology is wonderful and I, I i love tech but there is a, there's a difference between using technology to to impact your teaching and using technology as was mentioned before just for engagement and just because it's a novelty um i think we'll have a better understanding of technology and how to use it in education in 100 years time because it will be commonplace because it will be it'll be what you are brought up with and I know children are now brought up with it but you'd be surprised I'm sure you've all seen this as well in the schools how actually how limited their ability is with technology because all they know is to open an app and swipe something whereas actually the complex use of technology is still actually quite um quite infant with a lot of people um, and quite limited in how they use it so that's that's where I would go I think our ability to actually get out of the of the grounds and not just live in Google, funnily enough, and live through um, Microsoft Teams or Zoom or whatever, and actually get out physically into different places is going to be, I think, the, the the biggest draw in the next hundred years. 
but you still need someone there to to manage it and to to guide in the same way. So as a lot of, like a lot of other people have said, you're still going to need teachers there because ultimately it's the teachers who are the ones who are um, who are le- leading those opportunities. I was very much on the same wavelength as Neil Armand's team, that it will be quite similar. I really like the optimism of uh, Andy's answer. So, and Elliot, the you know, with what you were saying about the early career framework, I really, um, I would be very hopeful that things would be in a still in a good place and a better place, maybe. But I think the day to day job is going to be very similar, and I think school life will be very similar. I can't see big changes happening. I don't know enough about technology to know how much technology will change in 100 years. But I, I really like what Andy said, so I'm just going to, to echo his answer and then choose it. <laughs> I feel like we all kind of did the same thing, my team, didn't we? Just different spins on it. So are you, are you really going to make me choose a particular... No, not at all. Um... Well, I think we're, there's a massive consensus with the Power Rangers again. So yeah, so it's, it's interesting. No one mentioned hoverboards. I thought Chris was going to mention hoverboards. Um, oh, that was a given. <laughs> I mean, after Back to the Future let me down because they predicted it for around now and it hasn't happened. So <laughs> I feel like every time I'm on the gate, kids bring like slightly more elaborate modes of transport with them. Like I swear, at the start of the year, they were all on little push bike, you know, push scooters. And one of my kids yesterday had a folding bike, which I thought was very impressive so it wouldn't surprise me at all if by july they're all on like full-on hoverboards and that's just like you know we've got a little storage area for them that's great (laughs) so this is a tough one because my my response would have been the same as neil's team but i really i was really surprised in a good way by andy's point about travel and you know because it's not something i considered and so i think for that and for the optimism, I think Shannon and your team get the points on that one. So well done. Thanks, Andy. Which means it's 40 to 30 going into the last question. <laughs> there are 15 points available for this. And um, captains don't need, don't need to choose, all are on the line. Um, and it's one piece of advice for new and beginning teachers. And we're going to start on my, top of my left of my screen and work across. So I'll just, I'll just let you know who's next. Lloyd, you're going to begin for us. Nail behaviour. Without it, you will get nowhere. Morgs? Uh, mine would be, to summarise it in a few words, would be take that leap. If you're talking about um, Billy Thorpe in that review earlier, he was talking about he listened to this podcast and it helped him to join Twitter and to read books and so on. And I think everyone who you're hearing on this podcast today has all read a book that's like um, propelled them into joining Twitter or meeting all different people. And it's really helped all of us in our careers. So I would say take that leap in embracing uh, books and podcasts and Twitter and so on. So join Twitter. Gareth? I I think it's uh, reflecting because when you're teaching, you you have have so much doing. It's like you're performing all the time. and I think that the, the, the kind of golden skill for a great teacher is just being able to look at yourself lightly um, 
without any without any weight and just seeing seeing diff seeing a different way possibly even if that's just taking moments in lessons just to stand back and just watch and just see what's happening neil it is just a job you are to your employer you are indispensable don't give your all to one school because they will quickly find a replacement. So make sure you find somewhere that's half, where you're happy and that's good for you. Adam? Uh, I'm just meshing together two bits of advice that Lloyd gave, which is just pace is just, it's almost a myth. It's an easy answer for someone who's observing you. It doesn't really have anything else to say about your lesson to tell you that the pace is too fast or too slow or this took too long or this didn't take long enough. Like you're in the driving seat when you're teaching and I think you need to, have the confidence to control the the pace of your lesson and that very much links in with this behavior thing i got a real bee in my bonnet when i was training because all the feedback i got was like you're too slow you're too slow and simultaneously the other piece of feedback that i always got was like don't talk over them don't you know you have to get a silence in the room when you're talking and trying to mesh those two pieces of feedback together almost led me to leave the teaching profession because I just couldn't see a way that you could do both of those things. And the second thing is vastly more important. It's hugely more important. It's almost indescribably important. If you can't have the attention of every single member of your class, you don't, you can't teach. So that would be my advice. Is that the advice you give today? That's great advice. So I, was, I was training, not really training, but someone taught their first little 45 minute lesson in my class today. And I said, I think someone else observing that would have talked you about pace, but I'm not going to talk to you about pace at all. I thought you had really good control over that. But the piece of advice that I did give them was you can't let the kids talk over you. You need to be more patient with them and wait and narrate when they're silent and narrate who is being quiet and narrate who isn't. Perfect. Chris? I kind of feel like the one I was going to use has been taken. So I was going to say, if the school you're at overtly cares about your workload and stay put, and if they don't move, try another school. But that being the case, I'm going to, because that's kind of already been taken, I'm just going to keep it dead simple. And the piece of advice I would give to a new or beginning teacher is it gets easier. Just hang on. It gets easier. Andrew? Um... Yeah, something cropped up similar to what Adam said. Um, and I'm speaking to someone who's actually got a student teach with him at the moment. And one thing that constantly pops up, one thing I'm constantly trying to drive in is take everything one step at a time. So, yes, there are lots and lots of standards that you need to hit. There are loads of them. And some of them you won't even hit in your training year and your NQT year. And just focus on one thing that you need to develop. Don't try and do everything at once because you will absolutely burn out. Um, and as, as Adam said, you, you need to make sure that you're not letting the children talk over you because you're trying to tick lots of boxes that are on your lesson plan that you're trying to do for an observation. Um, and again, it comes down to pace. And I'm kind of hijacking what a lot of people have said already this evening is that sometimes you need to take a bit of extra time in a lesson to wait for the, to wait for the room before you carry on. And if that means you, you don't do one little thing, then that one little thing doesn't get done and it's not the end of the world. 
Um, and I, I think I mentioned this when, when I spoke to you, Kieran, um, on the podcast, is that I, I genuinely believe that starting out as a teacher, um, as, a, as a trainee teacher, as an NQT, and even, even after that, for a year or two after that, is very much like learning to drive a car, is that you learn to pass the test and actually you learn more as you progress through your career um, than you do in that one bit where you get the certificate. So yeah, take take everything one thing at a time. Don't try and improve everything in one go. That is a superb analogy. Love that. And then lastly, Shannon. Um, it's got to be the classic. Don't smile until Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> No, um, what's really annoying is I was mentally making a list of going, well, I'll say that, and if that gets taken, I'll say that. My first one was behaviour, so thanks, Lloyd. Um, and then I was going to say, effectively, what, not what Neil Armand said with, it is a job at the end of the day, and I adore my job, and I probably spend far too much time thinking about it. However, it is just a job, and so don't let it keep you up at night. So that one was gone. And then I was going to say what Adam and Andy said and feel very, very flustered now that I'm the last person, hence me waffling while I think. Um, I think really importantly, when you're new, don't feel like you are bothering people when you need to ask for help because people will want to help you. Even busy people, even other teachers who are time poor, don't feel like you're bothering them. And if it doesn't feel right, it might not be right. So if it's something like your mentor's giving you three targets after an observation, don't feel like you're bothering them and going back and saying, actually, three is a bit much for me. Can we just pick one? Or if you don't know a policy, or if you don't know how to do a bit of paperwork, which none of us know how to do when we start, just go and ask people. If you don't know something, but the site staff might be able to help, go and bother them, make friends with them. Just don't feel like you're a nuisance because everyone's been in that position. That's a tough one, guys. Um, <laughs> that, that's, that's all the kind of stuff you need to know before you go into your first year as a teacher, you know? Because I'm, whenever you're talking, I'm thinking, I remember when I learned that, I remember when I learned that, but I was already maybe a year, two years into the job when certain things clicked. So, you know, um, I had her when I started and now I don't. So <laughs> that tells you all of these know about my NQT year. Um, and, you know, Lloyd, from the start, you, you almost had it because you know I'm, right, sort the behavior, then focus on the maths. But Adam's advice on don't let the children speak over you because it's the most, one of the most important things you can do. That was a game changer in my career. Whenever that was the minimum expectation of behavior in my class. And when the things that I was going to say were important enough to pay attention to. So I think for that slight variation on the behavior theme, I think you've got the points. And that means Shannon's team, you guys are the winners with 55 points. But it was very, very close. Come on, Neil, mate. All you had to do was pick yourself twice. <laughs> I know, right? I know. <laughs> so I think all that's left to say is thank you guys for all of your hard work, for appearing on the podcast and your generosity with your time, both during the different seasons and tonight. And thank you very much for listening. See you next time. Mm -hmm.